Hi, Journey. I sure love all of you, and I'm sure grateful to get the privilege to be here with you today. And if you are our guest, we're really honored by you being here with us today. We're really, really glad you're here. Uh, I talk about this a lot. I'm just going to keep talking about it, and uh, I'm sorry if you get tired of me. Forgive me. Uh, our family is in this process of adopting these four little girls, all sisters from the Democratic Republic of Congo. My wife, Dana, as lots of you know, were there for a couple of months to try to bring them home, and the powers that be wouldn't let us leave with our daughters because of this bureaucratic red tape, and so we had to leave and come home without our daughters because, well, we have kids here and life here and work here, and so, uh, and it was really quite traumatic. Uh, leaving our daughters there was quite traumatic. It, it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to anyone, and I know life isn't fair, but uh, especially these four little girls, right, these four little sisters, that really wasn't fair to them. And they went back to the orphanage where, uh, as I was reflecting this week, what's true about that orphanage is no one really loves our daughters in that orphanage. They, they just don't. They're cared for by workers who get paid to meet their most basic needs. And that's the reality of any orphanage, really, on planet Earth. Workers get paid to meet kids' most basic needs. And so Dan and I, we've been talking and we've been hearing from the Lord. Uh, and so in light of all of that, these interactions with the Lord and what we've been conversing about and these reflections we're having, Dan is going to go back to the DRC pretty quick. And she's going to scoop up our four little girls and she's going to abscond with them across some foreign board. No, I'm kidding. That's not going to happen. She's going to scoop up our, I'm totally kidding. Cut that out of the tape. Get in trouble for that. She's going to scoop them up and she's going to take them to the little motel uh, where we stay there. And she's just going to hold them real, real tight. And I'm going to stay here and she's going to be there and we're going to be a family divided for a little while. Hopefully, prayerfully, it's a very, very short little while as we wait for that bureaucratic red tape to get dealt with so that we can eventually bring them home. And so would you just pray with us about all of that? We don't know exactly when Dan is going to leave uh, and would you pray for me especially, because laundry really isn't my thing, uh, but it's going to quickly become my thing if we want to have any clean clothes over there at our house. So uh, I'm a proud papa, and, and the orphanage where our daughters are sent us some photos this past week of our little girls, and so uh, there they are. These are brand new, uh, hot off the presses. Just this week we got these. They are sweet little precious girls. Go to the next one. Would you? Yeah, there's Karis. She's three. And she is just a, a gem. And then there is, yeah, there's Liberty. And, and this is a, you know, she's given the thumbs up, right? And uh, I taught all our girls this thumbs up thing, especially in the early days when nobody knew what anybody was saying, really. They speak Chaluba, we speak English. And so thumbs up is a pretty good universal, like, like what's it mean? Yeah, I'm okay, I'm good, right? Uh, How's your food? They do this. Did you sleep good? Mm-hmm. Want to take a nap? <laughs> oh, not so much. And so Liberty, she's, she's a pretty astute little girl, and, and so uh, this was especially, I'm going to try to do this without, like, weeping, but so we show her this thumbs-up deal, right? And so there's a photographer at the orphanage who's taking this picture, telling little Liberty, okay, these are going to go to your mom and dad in America, and so they're going to they're gonna see this picture. So what's she do? She does this. I'm okay. Right? Like, I'm okay. This sucks, but 
I'm okay. Way to go, pumpkin. And there's Jada, the oldest. She's seven or so. And there should be one more, little Gigi. The little baby, yeah, there's little Gigi. Bless her heart. She has boys' shoes on. That's very upsetting to Dana. That's why she's really going, because she is wearing boys' shoes. Can't have that. Thanks for obliging me all that. Thanks for your prayers. Uh, around here in the month of November, we're learning together more and more what it looks like for God's kingdom to come through our lives, especially in regard to the poor and the oppressed and widows and orphans, those cast out to the margins of society. And I want to talk to you today about love being humble. Last week I talked to you about what? Love being, one of you says risky. It was memorable, wasn't it? Love was risky. I talked about last week. It, it's just risky. You felt it, I'm sure, this week. The risk that love is, whether it's the poor or the oppressed or widows or orphans, those cast to the margins of society, you probably felt the risk of love with someone in your own family this week. It just, love is risky. But today we're going to turn the page and talk about how love is humble. Love is humble. And the humility deal, it's this incredibly difficult virtue to cultivate, right? Humility is a fantastic thing that as soon as you think you have it, you probably don't. That's just true. And the reverse doesn't follow, right? Like you not thinking of yourself as humble is no indication in any way that you are. Because see, both arrogant people and humble people are unlikely to think of themselves as being humble. It's just the way it goes with the humility deal. And people often confuse what being humble is. It's not about humiliation, though the two words have a similar Latin root word, the same Latin root word. Being humble does not mean that you're a doormat for other people where they just tread all over you. Humility is not at all about having low self-esteem or selling strengths or achievements that you have short. And we should all know, I want us to all know, that it's entirely possible to be humble, to be iron-willed, and to be highly successful. Those things can all coexist together. The great philosopher Muhammad Ali, he once incorrectly remarked, at home I'm a nice guy, he says, but I don't want the world to know that. Because humble people, he says, I've found, they don't get very far. And I tend to disagree with that. More importantly, so does Jesus Christ, who 2,000 plus years after he ascended into heaven, he's still writing history. I heard one guy define humility as making the choice, get this, to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Humility is the choice, the intentional decision, act of the will to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And when you drill down inside of it, that's certainly humility, but at the very end of the day, you know what else that is? That's love. That's love. Making the choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself, that's love. And you want to know what? Love is humble. Anytime we love, it is incredibly humble. I'm going to show you this from the scriptures. 1 John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If not, you can follow along here. We know, John writes, what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. 
so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? I know I've talked about this before, but because it's here in the text, I have to revisit it. The meaning of the word love in our culture has been greatly watered down, hasn't it? incredibly diluted. Think back just over the last week of your life. Reflect on how many times in all the varying contexts that you used that word love in the past week. If you're anything at all like me, you probably use the word love to talk about everything from dinner to cars to movies to your spouse to the person that you're dating, which by the way, spouse and person you're dating don't go together, right? That's a no-no. Don't do that. You can laugh at that, amazing, <laughs> moderately humorous. Might have used the word love to talk about the dessert and, and then like anywhere in between. The way we use the word love causes it really to have a variety of meanings. All the way from I really, 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 really like that to I want to marry you, I want to spend my life with you, and I want to make babies with you. Right? And everywhere in between. Love, this word, is all over the place. Kind of like nailing whipped cream to the side of a barn. Ever tried that? What happens to the whipped cream? It splatters everywhere, right? It's all over the place. And so you see, because that's the case, because the word love is splattered all over the place, whenever we run across this word love in the scriptures, it's really every single time important for us to drill down, mine down so that we can understand what the writer means when they say it, why? Because most people in the world today, they associate Christianity with this command to love, don't they? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've sort of got that going for us, right? Oh yeah, even the most devout atheists will say, oh yeah, Christians, they're supposed to love. They talk about how God, who doesn't actually exist, at least in an atheist mind, how God loves. Christianity is about loving. And lots of people, because that's kind of Christianity's label in the culture, lots of people think then that they know everything about Christianity because, well, it's just all about love, right? God is love. You're supposed to love. You're a Christian. Hey, I thought Christians were supposed to love. Why are you condemning me? Stop, please. Right? But what's happened for a whole lot of people because of sort of freewheeling way that we use that word love in our culture is that some people then, as a result, have misunderstood Christianity's teaching about love in terms of their own definition of the word. They might be applying a meaning to the word that isn't actually there, that doesn't actually exist. They're just running it through their grid. And so here we have this biblical writer, John. And by the way, the sort of loosey-goosey nature of the word love, it's nothing new. It was the exact same in John's day when he was penning this text as it is in ours. The word love was being overused in all kinds of ways. And he was keenly aware of that. So he's gonna talk about love and what it is, and so in order to cut through all of the misuse of the word love, he gives us an example of everything that he means when he says love. Here is the example, right here. We know what real love is. No matter what you think it is, no matter what your definition of it is, we know what it really is because Jesus gave up his life for us. John's saying to his original audience as well as to us, you wanna know what love is? You wanna know everything that love looks like? 
You want to know exactly how love feels. You want to see the humility that is love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And it gets real clear real fast that the love John's talking about has nothing to do with cars or dinner or movies or infatuation or even wanting to make babies. The love that John is describing was on full and complete display in the death of Jesus Christ for us. And it's so humble. So humble. Christ's death for you and for me His death that made a way for us to live life God's way forever and ever was and is and always will be exhibit A of everything that the humility of love is meant to look like. Making the choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. That's love and it is incredibly humble now john is a smart guy writer of the first john text the way he puts these words together on the page would have instantly brought to mind for his original audience the gospel picture of the good shepherd john chapter 10 and i want to show this to you just so we can step this out i tell you the truth anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, the sheep recognize his voice, and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger, They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. Happened an awful lot with Jesus and his parables, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep, Christ says. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. They were going over the wall. They weren't going through the gate. They were going over the wall. But the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Who's he talking about there? Satan, that's exactly right. That's what he's all about, stealing and killing and destroying. All the way to this very day. Stealing, killing, destroying. My purpose, Jesus says, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I'm the good shepherd. Here it is. This ought to sound familiar. Sort of reflections of 1 John chapter 3. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand, on the other hand, will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. He isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money. He doesn't really care about the sheep. Hired hand shepherd, he's like, yeah, rich sheep owner will just buy new sheep after this wolf decimates the flock. He's not invested 
He's not laying down his life. He's not setting aside his will. He's not deploying his resources. He's scattering when trouble comes. He doesn't care. Jesus says, I care. Because I'm the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. They know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father. Here it is again. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Now you notice in John chapter 10, John never uses the word love. But we're made to understand, aren't we, the humility of love as he talks about people laying down their life, the good shepherd laying down his life on behalf of his sheep. Making the choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. That's love. Love is incredibly humble. And love means that we're humbly ready to do anything for other people. Anytime. Drop of a hat. John chapter 15 verse 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love, humble love, Jesus-style love means that you and I are prepared to give up our own life so that others might live. Humble love is willingly saying no to your own life so that somebody else can have life. And I want you to consider that Jesus Christ didn't just go to the cross and die as some sort of demonstration of love so that we could stand at the foot of the cross and go, wow, he must have really loved in order to endure all of that. Wouldn't that be silly? Wouldn't that be silly? That isn't how we ever come face to face with the humility or the overwhelming nature of Christ's love. Instead, we experience the humility of Christ's love because of the benefit of life with God. The benefit of life with God forever that's given to us, offered to us as a result of Jesus' humble love demonstrated by his death. Which ought to cause us to stand back at the foot of the cross and go, oh my gosh. He did that for me. He did that for me. He loved me that much. He loved you that much. Would you imagine with me that you're sitting at the end of a dock on a beautiful Montana lake, gorgeous summer day. You're taking in sunshine and beauty all around. It's magnificent. And all of a sudden, sort of out of nowhere, this random person runs down the dock, jumps into the water, and drowns in order to prove their love for you. What are you thinking right now? That's crazy, right? That's like the most bizarre thing, the most stupid thing. The very first question I know you're asking if that ever happened to you is, why the heck? i like, what in the world? Now sure, you might be in need of love. You may very well have been sitting at the end of that dock mourning the loss of a love relationship and you're sitting at the end of that dock soaking in your PLOMs, your poor little old me's. 
But this irrational person running down the dock, drowning to, quote, prove their love for you, has no relation to anything, anything, anything you need right then. Right? It's just random, it's senseless, stupid, bizarre. That's crazy. But let's tweak up the story a little bit. Let's say that you're sitting out there on the end of the dock, taking in the same beautiful, gorgeous Montana day. And for some inexplicable reason, you fall into the water. It so happens you never had swimming lessons growing up, and so you're drowning. Flailing your arms, kicking your feet, head bobbing under the water, up for a moment, under the water, up for a moment, and you're drowning. Got the scene? And then like out of nowhere, someone springs off the end of the dock, jumping into the water at the cost of their own fate and saves you, rescues you from imminent death. Whoa. What do you say then? Well, you say something kind of like this, don't you? There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now that all makes sense, right? Because now there is this intelligent connection between the humble sacrifice that love made on your behalf. There you were, you didn't know how to swim, you were drowning, and then humble love compelled that person to risk their own life to save you. Love is humble. It's just that humble. You and I making the choice to forego our status, deploy our resources, use our influence for the good of others before ourselves. That's love. It is so incredibly humble and Jesus Christ is the supreme example of everything that humble love is. And so John sets us up, right? We know what love is now because we see Jesus Christ, because we experience Jesus Christ's love. And then he comes slinging out of that and he makes really what is quite a shattering claim. 1 John 3.16 now. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Wham. So now that you know what real love is, you know what it tastes like, you know what it feels like, you know everything about it because you've experienced it in light of that love, in light of what Jesus did, in light of how humbly he loves you, go and do likewise. You do just the same thing. Humbly lay down your life for your brothers and your sisters. And we swallow hard when we hear that, don't we? Like, gulp. Whoa. Now again, this declaration would have been very, very familiar to John's original audience. Because they knew very, very well everything that Jesus had commanded his disciples to do. One of the things he commanded them to do was love one another just as he had loved them. John 15, 12. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Nothing different about it. Jesus' example of love 
is just that. It's an example. It's our pattern that we follow. And we don't know everything that John had in mind when he talks about you and I giving up our lives for our brothers and sisters. We're pretty sure that he wasn't thinking of you and I dying on crosses as atoning sacrifices for the sins of other people, okay? We're pretty settled on that's not what John was getting at. It is possible that he was writing about the prospect of us possibly having to lay down our own life in order to save other people in times of persecution or laying down one's life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could happen. But at the bottom of it all, it seems most likely that John sang to us today, 2013, look, Jesus loves so incredibly humbly. He loves all the way to his very own death. And in light of that, you be ready to love just that humbly. You be ready to humble yourself and love in order to meet the needs of others. Whatever the need, whatever the price, you be ready. You choose to forego your status, deploy your resources, use your influence for the good of others before yourself. You be ready to love humbly. And up to this point in the text, all this talk, all this instruction, all this challenge even has been pretty ethereal. It's been sort of up here in the clouds, in the theoretical. You be ready to lay down your life. You be ready to die for someone if it's ever required of you. It, it, honestly, it's pretty theoretical, right? But then in the next phrase, John just crashes us to the ground into these very cold, very hard actualities of what humble love really looks like, down in the dirt, vivid living color with this very next proclamation, 1 John three seventeen. If someone has enough money to live well, sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? We're swallowing hard again, right? Because see, we can enthusiastically consent we can be as ready as we ever could be to lay down our life, to die for someone else. But when we're really, really honest, that's quite a remote possibility, isn't it? And if someday in some bizarre circumstance, out of nowhere, the opportunity arose for us to actually die for somebody, I'll bet that most people, my belief is that most people could probably dig down deep enough dredge up enough will to make the supreme effort that would be required. But in the meantime, how many of us are real content just to pursue total lifestyle comfort until that supreme sacrifice is demanded of us? A supreme sacrifice that probably, honestly, when we're candid, is never going to come. And so in the meantime, we're just fat and happy and comfortable. And John says, uh-uh, not meant to be the case. The moment of humble, Christ-like love is right here and it's right now. And John just says to us, look, if you have a job, if you have the means of livelihood and you see a brother or sister in need and you refuse to humble yourself and love them tangibly, love them, John says, how can the love of God possibly be in you? And this is a rhetorical question. He's saying it's, it's really not in you. 
is really not in you. The love of Jesus Christ is humble and the love of Jesus Christ is very tangible. It's meant to be very tangible, not just squishy, oh yes, I love people and I'm such a nice person. It's tangible. It is meant and intended to go out of one's way to give to those in need. And John says, as long as we have work, as long as God allows us to have provision and we do nothing to help the poor and the oppressed and widows and orphans, those cast to the margins of society, John says, where is God's love that's supposed to be in you? I don't see it. He says, I don't see it. And please, please understand what John's saying as well. He's not just talking about making a payment out of our bank balance and thinking nothing more about it. That's not his point. John's saying, this is about us, the church of Jesus Christ, humbling ourselves and loving other people in such a way that we, who are intended to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, get this, we enter into the story of the person who is in need and we actually, and John gets at this, we actually feel what that person is feeling. When he uses the word compassion, he means for us to feel what that other person is feeling, that brother or sister is feeling. It isn't just about $38 a month coming out of our bank account, going to some kid somewhere else on planet Earth. It's about entering into the story. It's about feeling what they feel. That's what having compassion means. It's about humbling ourselves enough to stop. Stop our hurried lives. Stop our often overblown sense of self-importance that many of us carry. Stop the busyness and the hecticness and kneel down in the dirt and look into the eyes of brothers and sisters in need. Actually hear their story. Actually enter into their story. Actually have compassion, which means feel what they feel. Value them for who they are. And humbly love them enough to tangibly do something about it. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Being generous with our money by giving to those in need is part of what humbly loving looks like, absolutely. But there's a way bigger picture. And the bigger picture is if you have something, if you have anything, if you have encouragement even, if you have the ability to bear someone's burden and you hold back from giving whatever it is that you have that someone else needs, John says, how can God's love be in you? How can God's love be in you? And sometimes we think loving people is hard and difficult. And oh my gosh, how am I going to? do this, but really it's very, very simple. 
middle school boys, if you know anything about them, they're not exactly the most humbly loving bunch of people that you'll ever meet, right? Ever been around them? But last month, there was a middle school football team who demonstrated precisely everything that humble love is and looks like and feels like with quite a surprising approach. Watch this. Between classes, they schemed and conspired. For weeks, the football players here at Olivet Middle School in Olivet, Michigan, secretly planned their remarkable play. Did anybody go, this is a crazy idea? No, everyone was in on it. But like the coaches didn't know anything about it. So we were like going behind their back. I've just never heard of a team coming up with a plan to not score. It's just like to make someone's day, make someone's week, just make them happy. The play which was two plays actually, happened at a home game earlier this month. The first part of their plan was to try to get as close to the goal line as possible without scoring, even if it meant taking a dive on the one yard line, which it did. The crowd was not happy. Quarterback Parker Smith. But us kids knew, hey, we got this. This is our time. This is Keith's time. Keith Orr is the little kid in the brown jacket. He's learning disabled, struggles with boundaries, but in the sweetest possible way. Because of his special nature, it's no surprise that Keith embraces his fellow football players. What is surprising is how they have embraced him. Hello. We thought it'd be cool to do something for him. Because we really wanted to prove that he was part of our team and he meant a lot to us. Nothing can really explain getting a touchdown when you've never had one before. Which brings us to part two of their play. If you didn't see Keith, it's because they were so protective of him. But he was in the middle of that rush. And when you crossed the goal line, what was that like? Awesome. <laughs> it was like, did he just score a touchdown? Get your what? camera out. I'm like, oh, I can't. Keith's parents, Carrie and Jim, almost missed the moment, but they got the significance. Somebody's always going to have his back from now until the day he graduates. She's right. When the football team decides you're cool, pretty much everyone follows suit. Today, Keith is a new kid, although by no means was he the only one who was profoundly changed. What was it like for you? It was like, like once I saw him going, I was smiling like about like here. Wide receiver, Justice Miller. Like nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect you so much? Because like, he's never been like cool or popular and he went from being like pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. I would have not really thought about that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. Well, I kind of went from being somebody like, mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day and everyone's life. Which may just make that touchdown the most successful football play of all time. Steve Hartman on the road in Olivet, Michigan. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and I just invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads, Love is humble. 
just like those little guys demonstrated so incredibly well. Forgoing their status, deploying their resources, using their influence for the good of others before themselves. It's everything that Jesus Christ did. says, go and do likewise. You, you, every last one of you, go and do likewise. Humbly love the poor, humbly love the oppressed, humbly love the widows, humbly love the orphans, humbly love all those cast to the margins of society, humbly love the little guy on your team doesn't think anyone notices or cares about him. Humbly love him. Her. I just invite you to use this time to cement some decisions with the Lord about what your loving people humbly is going to look like. It doesn't have to be complicated. Part of it is that just that it would grow in us more and more and more each day. So I'm loving people more today than I did yesterday. And I'm loving people more tomorrow than I did today. Maybe there's some of you here today that God's awakening you to this truth that his love for you compelled him to give his everything all the way to his son, Jesus Christ. The one who came to live to show us what life his way looks like and then he came to die so that you and I could have relationship with him forever and ever. Jesus Christ humbly loved you with his everything. Perhaps you're sensing today that he's standing at the door of your heart, knocking, inviting you to salvation, inviting you to forgiveness, inviting you to come home, inviting you onto the mission, into the mission that he made you for. If that's you today, you can take this very bold step of trusting Christ with your everything by praying along with me. If God's working in your heart in that way, I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, I get it. I need you. I need your grace, I need your salvation, I need your forgiveness right now. And by faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. Here I am, my life, my everything. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you for bearing my sin. Thank you for giving me life. I'm trusting you with my all. If you're someone who's stepping into faith in Jesus Christ, 
today, that's the biggest decision you'll ever make. Such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision and I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. It's a private moment. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody's looking around this room. If you prayed with me just then, would you be real bold? Would you just slip your hand up and let me catch your eye? You can do that right now. Let me say, yes, absolutely, sir. Absolutely, yes. And over here, yes. Way to go, yes. And here, yes, to my left, absolutely, yes. Way to go. And there, yes, sir, absolutely. Way to go. And there, you too, sir, yes. thank you so much that your saving work is active and moving across lives right here, right now. We praise you, God, for these who are stepping into your salvation today. Thank you, Jesus. And God, I pray for us that you would make us into a humbly loving army. Loving people with the exact same kind of love that you loved us with. That Jesus, every single one of us, every single day would be foregoing our status, deploying our resources, and using our influence for the good of others before ourselves. Make that true of us, please God. For it's you we love with our everything, our all.